0: Michael has been in this community as a musician, as a father, as a friend, um, as a Bible teacher. Uh, he's been here a couple times, talked about lament, talked about hesed, which is the loving kindness of God. And whatever he's got this morning, I really want to hear it. Michael, come on brother, give him a big welcome.
1: Well, he's probably like 50 now right 40? 40 okay I can't get over it um, just before I get started I want to share this idea with you guys this is a, one of those journaling Bibles and if you've uh, years ago I, I i read through one of these and marked it up and I gave it to one of my kids and then I realized I'm gonna do that with all my kids so you read through the Bible it's sort of having a conversation with your kid in the margins, and now I'm, this is my for my granddaughter. Uh, it's just a really cool idea to sort of nurture, and it makes you read the Bible too, because it gives you another reason to be reading it. But uh, I just commend this idea to you. Get a journaling Bible, read one for each of your kids. Is what a precious gift. I would have given anything if my mother would have done that to be able to read through and have a conversation with her in the margins. So that's just just a little side. I'm not selling them, by the way. Uh, So Um, see what I want to talk talk about. Um, Two moments that have sort of led me to this moment. Um, They all happened within the last couple of years. Uh, One place I was teaching on the life of Jesus in uh, in South Dakota someplace, and a little old lady walked up to me and said, um, what do we know about Jesus family? I said, well, I think he had some brothers. She said, do you know how many? I said, well, I'm not really sure. And of course, we do know. He has four brothers, and we know their names. But I didn't know that. And I'd worked all these years studying scripture and didn't know that. So, and then um, the second question, uh, uh, a young woman uh, came up to me and, and asked me about uh, the distance between um, Capernaum and, and uh, Jerusalem and how long that would take to walk. I had, I had no idea. Um, so, I, I, I realized this new calling on my life was to learn about the details of Jesus' life. I want to know every detail about him. I mean, this man who gave himself for us. We should know. We should know the names of his brothers. Do you know the names of his brothers? James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon, because everyone's named Simon. And he's got at least two sisters that we know of. So we should we should know those things. So. Uh, <coughs> That's kind of the first, uh, the first thing that happened. Then the 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 second big moment that happened. um, Again, I was someplace teaching, and uh, a young woman came up to me. I'd I'd assigned the class a a, a paper on the life of Jesus. You know, five pages, something like that. And um, Rachel Hutcherson is her name. I I told her I would make her make her name famous. (laughs) Rachel came up to me after the uh, class, and she goes, "I'm dropping this class. I don't even know why I took this class. I'm a math major." I said, you're a math major. Hmm." I said, okay, you don't have to write a paper. She got interested. I said, all I want from you is a number. I would like to know the percentage of Jesus' life we have in the Gospels. I would really like to know that. Well, see, that captured her imagination. The paper was only supposed to be five pages. She comes back with 25 pages of calculations. She looked at each episode in the Gospels, calculated in minutes how long each one would take, harmonized them and, I mean, did all this work. And this is the number she came up with, 0.09. She says, if Jesus' life is $100, we have nine cents of it. And that completely blew my mind. A new, sort of a new way of looking uh, looking at the gospel. So what, what I wanna do is look at some of those uh, details and, um, and, and try to understand what they mean, right? Um, let me give you a quick sketch of Jesus. Um, He's about five foot six. How do I know that? From biological characteristics of Jewish burials in the Hellenistic and Roman period. 200 burials of first century Jewish males. The average height is five foot six. So about that tall. You're thinking, Jesus is short. No, everyone's short. You know, if he, if he's, if he was average height, and, and I think he probably was. I actually talked to a man who had a vision of Jesus once in his uh, hospital room. And I said, What did he look like? He said, well, He's really short. So <laughs> maybe that was right. Hair about three inches long, um, so the 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 you know white blue eyed auburn haired Jesus that so many of us have is probably probably wrong. Black hair, three about three inches long. He's virtually unrecognizable in a crowd. How do I know that? Because Judas has to point him out to the Roman soldiers. It's not like he's taller or he dresses different. He's virtually unrecognizable. His own disciples don't recognize him in John 21 uh, when he's standing on the se- seashore a hundred yards away. So. Um, you would pass by Jesus on the street and probably not look twice because of his his appearance. Um, He doesn't wear uh, a yarmulke. That doesn't happen till the fifth century. No side locks. That doesn't happen till later. He probably speaks in his in his humanity. He speaks about three languages. How do I know that? Because everyone speaks three languages. He speaks Hebrew when he's in the synagogue. He speaks Galilean Aramaic, a special kind of Aramaic when he's just talking amongst his friends and uh he speaks uh greek um you know um, amongst the other the other people who live in and around galilee so he speaks hebrew greek and and uh uh, aramaic i think that this is so cool there are certain syllables he can't pronounce you know the whole shibboleth thing from uh judges 12 6. as a galilean um this is the hebrew letter shin if there's a dot on it, it's pronounced "sh. If there's not a dot, it's pronounced suh. Jesus doesn't make that differentiation. And it makes him sound uneducated. His, his own disciples in Acts are thought to be uneducated because they have this accent, this Galilean accent. So there's, so there's certain syllables that he can't pronounce. I don't know. I just think that's so cool. Um, he grows up in a household of at least nine people. Uh, I know his grandfather's names, Jacob and Heli. I know what his favorite verse is. His favorite verse is the Shema. Uh, Three times he's asked, what's the most important commandment? And he responds, twice he answers with the Shema, and then once um, he's asked, what's the most important verse? And he goes, I don't know, what do you think? And this scribe responds with the Shema, and Jesus says, right. So it's kind of everyone's favorite verse. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, V'ha'avta Adonai Eloheka Bekola Vavka, Nefeshka, Ekol Meodeka. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and with everything you are. And my mentor, uh, Bill Lane, uh, Wes referred to, Bill said the Shema teaches us that the best way to love God is to listen to him. The best way to love anybody is to listen to them, and uh that's his favorite verse oh i could go on and on about these but let me uh let me look at a couple of incidents uh oh i'm doing great on time talking fast sorry um if, if you look at the gospels one of the things that sort of is mystifies me is what i call the twin incidents there are all of these incidents that are that happen in sort of doubles and uh two storms on the sea of galilee two anointings two miraculous catches of fish Two temple expulsions, two sendings, two miraculous feedings, two uh, confessions of Peter. They're all these double stories. And I can't find any uh, literature, not in the Christian world, where people are talking about this phenomenon, which I think, again, is very interesting. Uh, Now, the rabbis say that when there's a twin incident in the Hebrew Bible, that one will interpret the other. And so I'm, kind of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tr- take that, uh, that point of view and uh, look at a couple of twin incidents and show uh, how they, they point to each other. The first one are the two feedings, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of 5,000. We just sort of glopped those together, right? In fact, there are some scholars that said there, re- there really weren't two, there was really only one and somehow they got divided up, which is such, I don't know, I don't, don't, I don't wanna use bad words up here, but uh, I, don't, I don't like that kind of scholarship. So uh, let, let me read, just look at those and, 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 uh, and read, the, read through them to you. Uh, this is uh, Mark 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and talked. They've been out on their first mission, and now they're reporting back. Why? Because they are under his authority. And you report back, and you say, this is what I've said, and this is what I've done. <clears throat> then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, that happens twice in Mark as a book, bookend. Uh, they're covered up with people. You know, Jesus will say, Have a boat ready so they don't push me into the lake. I mean, there's, they're just covering him up. Um, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Um, and this never works, does it? If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's not very big. And Jesus is uh, only. Uh, mentioned in that 0.09% on the northern part of that lake. So he's not even down to the south where Tiberius is. He's up crisscrossing where Capernaum and Bethsaida and, and Magdala are, very northern tip. And so what happens? He tries to get away from the crowd. He gets in the boat and goes across the lake. What happens? Well, the people follow along on the shoreline because they can see the boat, and they're waiting for him when he gets there, and that's what happens here. So he says, come away, come uh, away. Uh, 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 come away by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Uh Brenna Manning used to say, by the way, that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. I'll just leave that with you if you want to write that down. <laughs> so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Listen, but many who saw them leaving recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns, and got there ahead of them. So it's not a very good strategy to get away from the crowd. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd... He had compassion on them, which is the opposite of what I would have on them. Uh, You know, the other people see a a crowd, Jesus sees a flock, right? They're like sheep. So, uh, so um, So he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him, this is a remote place. They're reminding him, they don't think he's aware. Uh, excuse me, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered with, I think, a little twinkle in his eye, you give them something to eat. Now, William Lane had this uh, teaching that he used to do that, that God always calls us to the level of our own inadequacy. God calls us to the level of our own inadequacy. Um, you know, most people, you you develop a skill and you do what you're good at. Bill would say, that's not what God's calling you to do. He says you should always be right on the edge. So if the Lord doesn't show up to help you, you'll fail miserably. That's working at the, at the level of your own inadequacy. And that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. Well, there's 4,000 men, probably eight ten thousand 10,000 people. And they got, you know, they got nothing. I think they steal something from some little boy. That's in John. But... Basically, he's calling them to the level of their own inadequacy. You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much uh, on bread to give them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus said, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them uh, them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass that's a detail that's only in mark that the grass was green so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties taking the loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven the only details we have about Jesus attitude when he prays is he looks up when he prays and I've been trying that lately you know because we automatically look down when we pray but Jesus apparently looks up when he prays so he looks up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. Um, and the disciples, here's, here's the point, here's one I want to focus on. And the, the, the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls. Now, here the 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 the, the, the point of this story is the different. Greek words that are used for basket. Uh, this word is uh, kofinos. A kofinos, they picked up 12 basketfuls. A kofinos is this big. It's like a creel. You put a string through it and you, you put your lunch in it. Okay, it's, it's big enough for your lunch. Okay, so they've just fed 5,000, 10,000 people, and they scour the, the, the area for the, it's called the pia, P-E-A-H, the leftovers. In Judaism, you don't waste food because that, that's an insult to God because God gives you food. So they pick up the leftovers and out of that vast crowd, all they have are 12 little basketfuls. How many disciples are there? 12. This is perfect provision. The miracle behind the feeding the 5,000 is that there is there's just enough left so that the disciples can have uh, a lunch as well. Okay, so that's the feeding of the five thousand. Let's look at feeding of four thousand quickly. This is uh, chapter eight. Um, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, "I have compassion." That's what set off the last miracle uh, for the feeding of the five thousand. Jesus says, "I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days." and have nothing to eat. He's been teaching them for three days. Can you imagine hanging out with Jesus and listening to him talk for three days? Yikes. Um, If I send them away hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. The disciples answered, where in this remote place can anyone get enough to feed them? They've already forgotten what he did before. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the loaves and given, uh, and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also. He says, two separate blessings, one for the loaves and one for the, which I think is interesting. And um, so he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Here it is. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls. It's a different word for basket. It's spheros. A spheros is a rope basket. It's a big, when when Paul is led over the wall in Acts, it's one of those uh, baskets. I'm looking for the reference. I've got it here somewhere, Acts 9.25. It's a spheros, a man-sized basket, okay? Earlier, feeding in the 5,000, 12 little baskets, just enough, perfect provision. Now, seven man-sized baskets. So it's abundant provision. So the, the miracle behind these two different feedings is really different. One's the miracle of perfect provision. The other is the miracle of abundant provision. They're both miracles. And um, my best example, oh, I'm doing good on time. The, my best example is uh, I, one of the first times I was in Israel, uh, my wife Susan called me and uh, our well had broken. We lived up on Dora-Whitley Road, had well water, well broke down. And we've got three toddlers, you know, all kinds of uh, dirty diapers and stuff. Of course, I'm at the Jerusalem Hilton, you know, waiting for my seaweed wrap and my massage, you know, at noon. So, but she, you know, she says the well's broken, and I we we called we called Henry Well, the the great company that takes care of our well, and uh, they said it's going to be twenty nine hundred dollars to put a new motor on this well to pull the pump. Our pump was, our well was 600 feet deep. It's one of the deepest wells in Williamson County. So, and she says, and we don't have $2,900. And so I said, I don't know, all we can do is pray. So I pray with her on the phone. And as I put my, um, put the receiver down, that was back in the days when you put receivers down, young people. <laughs> There's a knock on the door. It's, uh, it's the guy who's directing the video. We're shooting a video on the life of Jesus. He walks into me and he says, you know, I know you committed to be here for 10 days and 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 to not receive any payment, but we just feel like we should pay you something for being here. And he hands me a check for $2,900. Okay, if it, if it had been $29 million, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> I would be morbidly obese sitting in front of a large screen TV, right? But that was, see, that was perfect provision. The God of the universe knew that this woman in Franklin, Tennessee's well was broken. The God of the universe. And he moved someone in, you know, 6,000 miles away to write a check to pay to fix. I mean, that's perfect provision. And uh, I think we need to have eyes to see that sometimes that's how God uh, does his thing. And let me do one more, uh, one more example very quickly. So abundant provision, which is okay too. I'll take abundant provision, but perfect provision is pretty cool too. And this is another one of those twin incidents, the uh, miraculous catch of fish. Uh, and here's the first one. This is in Luke, four, uh, Luke five. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Luke calls the Sea of Galilee a lake because he's seen the Mediterranean. He says, this ain't no sea, this is a lake, right? He, the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets, which means they're done for the day. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out, it's a technical nautical term, a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, you've heard this a million times, that it's because the acoustics are better and the sound travels across the water. No. Jesus says, Have a boat ready so the people don't push me into the lake. This is crowd control. He gets in the boat and then comes comes out into the water. <clears throat> uh, when he had finished speaking, notice that Luke left out the story I would have, or the lesson, I kind of would have liked to have heard that, but I don't know. I'll deal with that. I'll deal with that when I see Luke. Uh, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon said, Master. Um, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything but because you say so now Peter has seen Jesus heal his mother or mother-in-law so he knows that something's up here so because you say so uh, I will let down the nets Um, when they had done so they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break so they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Abundant provision. Perfect provision, abundant provision. So there's abundant provision. The boats are sinking from all the fish. I don't know if you've ever been fishing and not ca- all night and not caught anything, but this speaks to a fisherman. Uh, when Simon saw this, he, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me. Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's heard of the preaching of John the Baptist, and he knows he needs to repent. So that first so-called miraculous catch is all about abundance. Let me read to you a second miraculous catch. This isn't usually the one that's read, but I'm beginning to see that this is a miraculous catch as well. This is in Matthew 17. And, oh, so am good on time. I was worried all the way here that i wouldn't have enough time i'm talking fast enough and get this all in um matthew 17 24 after jesus and his disciples arrived in capernaum the collectors of the two drachma tax came to peter and asked does your teacher pay the temple tax this is late in the ministry and i've been trying to understand the trajectory of jesus ministry and i'm beginning to believe that of course there was a huge spike well there initially it's flat because he has a a solo ministry in the synagogues before he even calls the disciples jesus doesn't need the disciples i mean he has his own ministry in the synagogue Uh, but then he begins to call the disciples and do miracles and his popularity just skyrockets we just saw people are crowding him and then what happens he starts saying things like you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood no my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink and I think there's an erosion in his popularity. And when in Matthew 17, I know I'm reading between the lines, and I, I won't be dogmatic about this, never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But I think what's happening is they go back to Capernaum, there's no huge crowd waiting for them, just a couple of tax collectors. I think his, his popularity has begun to erode. Um, but I'll just, just, I'll just leave that with you. Please don't disagree with me, I'm very fragile. Um, <clears throat> So the, 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 the collectors of the temple tax are there. That's Exodus 30, 13, the, ta- the tax that, that sustains the temple. Um, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, as a, as a teacher, he's exempt from the tax. So it's a, it's a re- very real question. Uh, yes, he does, replied Peter, but I don't think Peter really knew. When Peter came into the, ta- into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. Right. So Jesus just made a case for the fact that he shouldn't have to pay the tax. But so we may not offend them. Since when does Jesus not want to offend these people? I don't understand this one. Help me figure that out if you you know. So that we may not offend them. Listen, go to the lake. Throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. I, I, I suggest to you that this is the second miraculous catch of fish. And the miracle behind this miracle is perfect provision. Just, I mean, before we've got, the boats are sinking with all the fish. Now we've got just one fish, but what's in his mouth? A coin that perfectly pays the tax for Jesus and Peter. Perfect provision, just like the 12 little baskets. Abundant provision and perfect provision. And so I I just wanna encourage you to see that God works in these amazing ways. Sometimes he knows exactly what he needs and he provides perfectly for us. 12 little baskets, a fish with a coin in his mouth. But sometimes he provides abundant. The boats are about to sink seven-man-sized uh, baskets. So I want to encourage you to look at the details of Jesus' life and, uh, and find more of these and then come and tell me about them, and then I'll teach them like I thought of it, okay? Thank you.
0: Man, a half hour goes by quickly. Michael, thank you. Um, sitting here thinking, you know, Um, perfect provision, abundant provision. I I sometimes think that those of us who live in one of the wealthiest counties in the nation worry more about finances than people who have very little or nothing. And I wonder what application we can each take with us this morning about perfect provision, abundant provision, and to uh, ask the Holy Spirit to show us the ways in which we perhaps are not trusting him with our finances, where we have perhaps made uh, money or the work of our hands an idol to ourselves. Um, scriptures, um, The Old Testament scripture, I love it. One of the prophets says, no more will we say, my God, to the work of my hands no more will we say our God to the work of our hands. And then the apostle John who walked with Jesus saw these abundant provisions. At the very end of uh, uh, John, um, the epistle, he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. This has been my problem. I confess it to you freely. God is helping me with this. God has helped me with this. He continues to help. But I have to continually remain aware of my tendency um, to be eaten up with worry about provision. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Peace of Christ to you, brothers. Thank you, Michael.